0: Welcome to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast with your host, Brian DeHart. Thank you, Bruno. Balón que pasa? Good news, man. Go ahead. Make my day.
1: Mac and Cheese Music Podcast is now in 13 countries. Straight
0: to DeHart, and you're to blame. You give podcast a bad name.
1: No, 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 no. It's the other way around. So...
0: You're the sperm that won.
1: It's got very little to do with me. It's most definitely the quality of folks we have on this show. Today's guest is from London, England. Bond. James Bond. Nope. Better. Much better. Today's conversation is with Mickey La Rosa. Film curator, writer, former filmmaker, master of arts... And Editor-in-Chief of MLR Movies and Live Music Reviews. Elementary, my dear Watson. That's right. Bam! I want to thank our mutual friend, Marta Card, for introducing us. She is the one that has facilitated today's show. Thank you. The insight Mickey shares is absolutely fascinating. With that said...
0: I'm curious. What makes you so curious? Hi, Mickey. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Nice to see you. You as well. (laughs) You're okay. How was your week off? It's good. It started uh, very, very well. Uh, Just relaxing, watching films, not thinking about work. Great. What movies are you watching right now? Oh, various. Uh, The last one I watched was last night a film from uh, the sixties, um, a science fiction film called Crack in the World. Have you heard of that? No. <laughs> no? Yeah. It, it sounds, sounds like as movie. bad as the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but fun, right? <laughs> yes. So I'm fascinated by these kind of films. Yeah. Uh, it was a mixture of science fiction and uh, kind of catastrophic film. Which uh you know it, it would would end up being a bit more of a genre in the seventies with all the big films that came out of the studios in that era. I uh, think I think the large on the largest possible scale was done in Independence Day. <laughs> right. Where they tried to destroy the the whole earth. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But yeah, I do, I do prefer, actually, small-scale science fiction films. Something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for me, is one of the masterpieces of the 50s.
1: I understand that. Uh, so what other movies do you think that stand out? Like, the, what do you think about The Day the Earth Stood Still? Was that...
0: Fantastic film, yeah. Or even um, things like um, A Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Was that with Robbie the Robot? <laughs> yes yeah it's first appar- uh, appearance absolutely I forget, yeah
1: i forget the name of the television show that he was in uh but where he was a featured part of that i can't remember that it was the science fiction thing it was on cbs and i couldn't watch it as a kid because we didn't get cbs in my town
0: <laughs> i see i think cbs was quite out there they they showed uh, the original run of uh, the Twilight Zone, which for me was a massively influential uh, series. Which ob- obviously I wasn't—I wasn't born in the 50s and 60s, but uh, we watched it in the 80s in Italy. Uh, it was, I was—I was massively influenced by that. Me too. Uh, how about the Outer Limits? Did you watch the Outer Limits? And I think we had that, but I—I I never watched it or. Or maybe I discovered it when I, I moved over to England uh, but I never never watched it. You know, as a kid for me, the Twilight Zone, Star Trek, you know, the original series, those were the shows that really did the trick for me. Well, yeah. so, I, I'm very much into science fiction and horror uh, as well as international cinema and uh, small scale independent films blockbusters, I mean, I, I like a bit of everything. I would get bored just watching the same thing all over again. Oh, the know. same genre? Yeah, yeah. So I, I try and mix things up. Uh, the, the, the film before uh, uh, Cracking the World, the night before that, I watched a, a new film. It was on, on Amazon. Because it was Valentine's Day, I said, okay, I'll pick the first romance that that comes, you know, comes out on the on the planner. and it was cringy to say the least, because I I hadn't watched the trailer before watching the film, so I, all of a sudden it just came to me. It was a faith-based film. Uh-huh. It was very religious, very Christian. Uh-huh. And I and remember I was born a Catholic. Sure, but uh, I'm not really into those kind of films. And it was, it was like only, a couple of, kisses on, you know, a couple of pecks on the lips. That said No nudity. No sex scenes. It was all very restrained and all very God made me do this. God made me, you know gave me strength to do that and. Apparently, it was based on a true story that happened at the end of the 90s, um, and about this singer who became famous, Jeremy Camp. I I never I never heard of it. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I I yeah. I know about Jeremy Camp. Yeah, I do. Uh, I've never really listened to the genre. I you know I go to church. Uh, I'm a I'm a believing Christian. People need to just lead their lives the way they choose. That's the way I feel about it. And I, it's not any of my business what uh, what other people Yeah, Yeah,
0: it, it's called uh, I Still Believe. And I I said to my friends, avoid at all costs. Well,
1: I, I tell you what, I can't believe you watched it because I would find it tedious. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I, I think I needed a bit of romance in my life. And I said, okay, the first thing that pops up Nothing else was on that was worth it, and that was new, a new film. I normally watch the trailers before watching a film, but sometimes I do uh, dive in and try and find new things that potentially nobody knows about and they are worth discovering, but this was just not up my alley at all.
1: I know what you mean about watching a romance, so I I uh, had the same inclination last week, so I pulled out Romancing the Stone, which I hadn't probably watched for 15 Oh, Romancing
0: the Stone is a, a classic. <laughs> yeah. But that's more of an adventure romance, right? Right. Well, that's as far as I'm getting. <laughs> so you like the adventure part of it, but yeah, not the I romance. Did.
1: I just love the way that it was, you know, after even all
0: these years, it was just so entertaining. Just wow. That film was the film that actually put Zemeckis on the map. Because he had uh, flop after flop after flop, and he was done as a filmmaker. And then finally, this script landed on his lap. And lucky for him, he accepted it and made it. And he, and he was a massive hit and that opened his doors and the following film was Back to the Future and he was, you know, up and running. Uh, but yeah, thank God, Romancing the Stone came about. I'm, I'm a big fan of Rob, Robert Zemeckis actually.
1: Didn't he do Forrest Gump as well? Wasn't that Yeah, who? and then
0: obviously he won the best director Oscar for Forrest Gump.
1: Brian and Mac and Cheese here. I have a very special guest, Mickey LaRosa from London, England, film curator, writer, master of arts, former filmmaker, editor-in-chief of MLR Music and Live Music Reviews. Anything else I can add
0: to that, Mickey? <laughs> thanks, Brian, for the kind introduction, and thanks for having me on.
1: It's really a pleasure. You've had a pretty interesting journey from Northern Italy to London, England.
0: Yeah, well, I was born in Milan. Uh, I should say, should I say in the '70s? Yeah, I'm that old.
1: <laughs> That's all right. You can call me Pops because I'm older than you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, when I finished uh, film school, I decided I wanted to have a life in uh, in England, and I moved to London in 1997. And I got an interesting story for you. Actually, um, I came over here on the 3rd of August, ninety-seven, and then exactly four weeks later, at the end of August, on the 31st, Princess Diana died. So I was in the country just when this massive outpouring of emotion and grief erupted in this country. And it was amazing to watch, actually. I do remember all the flowers being laid outside Buckingham Palace uh, during those days. It was like a traumatic experience for the country. And it was incredible, I I had just moved here and Princess Diana died. Uh, Just found it absurd. Uh, It's just one of those things that you can't believe because she was such an icon.
1: Very interesting, so I do remember that were the crowds as massive as it looked like on television? <laughs> they were, help?
0: Brian, yes. It was just incredible to watch, experience that over here in this country. You know, of course, in Italy they they heard about it and everybody was sad, I think all over all, all over the world. But being in the country here where you know the royal family is so important and in you know, they got such uh, such love for them it was incredible to watch yeah
1: being an american i don't get it
0: <laughs> yeah well to be to be perfectly honest with you i was born in a republic and i still don't get the monarchy <laughs> so i mean italy was originally a monarchy but then uh, after the war we decided we'd go with the republic instead yeah. Uh, and I think it was a good decision, you know. So um, the king was exiled, and, you know, we became a republic. And I was born in a republic, so I still don't get monarchies in 2021.
1: Call, call us backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you attended the film school in Italy, is the Lucino Visconti Film School?
0: Yes, yeah, so we got the Luchino Visconti Film School in Milan, and then there's the massively famous Centro Sperimentale in Rome, which is where all the major film directors come come out of, and where all the the great directors taught as well. Uh, so the Luchino Visconti is uh, based in Milan, and we had teachers from uh, the state TV, which would be like the BBC in in the UK. We call it Rai in uh, in Italy, and Rai actually produced v- produced very good films as well for this for th- theatrical release. Uh, so we had professors from uh, Rai and other filmmakers that taught us. Uh, it was very good experience. I became a film producer in independent filmmaking in first of all in Italy, but just. A very brief period, because soon after film school, I decided to move to London and I made of this my home. And then here I became a, a producer of uh, independent sh- film shoots, uh, short films. Um, and then from there I made my contacts, and then I moved to TV, which is where which is which is where the the money is is. Uh, so if you want to have a, uh, a stable income, I guess, that's how you define it, you, you work in TV rather than independent filmmaking. And that's when I became a TV production manager for TV and we made programs for all the satellite channels here, Discovery, Animal Planet, Sky, and so on and so forth. Um, a terrestrial channel as well called Channel 5. And then uh, that's when uh, I decided I that was wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I then uh, left everything, left my my work, and moved. Uh, well, didn't move. I traveled uh, all over the world for about four months. That's an interesting story, actually. I decided I wanted to really work in the film industry more than the TV industry, that was originally my goal. So I planned a holiday, but I planned it around an event. So George Lucas went to Fox Studios in uh, um, Sydney, Australia to make his uh, prequel films of uh, Star Wars. That was end of the '90s, early '90s, and uh, I managed to secure actually an interview for uh, the for episode two, Attack of the Clones. No, sorry, that was uh, summer of two thousand and three, so that was for uh, Revenge of the Sith, episode three, actually. So mm-hmm. they had just filmed uh, Attack of the Clones there because the first film. The Phantom Menace was done in London, but then they moved production to Sydney, Australia because they built these new Fox Studios, which was, you know, all the rage at the time. So they did episodes two and three there. So then I, I was there in the summer of 2003, June, I remember, and I had this interview at Fox Studio at, at um, I don't know if it was Fox Studios or, or I think he was inside, the studios and I interviewed for one of the positions, you know, production assistant or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then they said they were actually getting rid of people because they had too many assistants. So I finally didn't get the job. And I believe that might've changed my, the direction of my career had I got that. Uh, But then, um, you know, that life took another turn I finished my holiday, went all over the place. Uh, went to America as well. During that holiday, I went to South South Africa um, and uh, came back to the UK. This time, I didn't have a place to stay, no money, no job. So I took the first thing that, that came, uh, came my way, which is a a job in a college. And then from there, I basically stayed in colleges teaching And on the side, I also did specialize in film programming and curating, which was a master's uh, that I finished a couple of years ago. And on the side, I also do the film programming job now. But you can't really do that full time because there's no money in the arts, as you can imagine. So I'll have to keep my teaching job for now, but I'm proud of it. You know, I um, engage with young people every day and I like it. They They keep me young. They keep me fresh. They keep me, you know, motivated. It sounds like you were on holiday for several months. I was, Yeah. I went to South Africa first. I stayed with a a very good friend of mine. He's one of my best friends in South Africa. He became a massive uh, set and lighting designer for the stage in South Africa. He does all the big um, opera and theater productions there. So I'm very proud of him. And I I stayed with him for a while. And then I, so he showed me around Joburg We went to Durban and then I eventually, I went to Cape Town on my own. I stayed a week there. Then I moved over to Sydney. I went to Melbourne. Uh, Then I, when I left, I, I stayed in Sydney, I guess for about a month. I also went to the Sydney Film Festival, which was on in June that year. And then I moved to Hawaii I visited a couple of the islands. Uh, was in Oahu first, and I went to Kauai just to see where they shot Jurassic Park. You know, I went to all the filming locations there. I they, didn't shot Pearl Harbor yeah. there. They, they shot Pearl Harbor. They shot all these big films. Um, also Raiders of the Lost Ark was, was shot there. Uh, so then I went to L.A., uh, where I met up with my brother. We had a good three weeks together. We were driving around uh, California, Arizona, and Nevada. We went to the Grand Canyon. We went to Las Vegas. We <laughs> went to, up to San Francisco, which is amazing. Uh, and we, we visited all the locations of the, the films that made my life. For example, in San Fran, I... Uh, experienced all the the places where Hitchcock shot vertigo, which is you know one of one of the best films I've ever seen. And it was very interesting to see how those locations um, are in, are now uh, as compared to 1958. It was interesting to see how they they stayed the same or didn't stay the same. The evolution of those places, um, and then after that, I left my brother and went to New York, and went to to see film locations there as well, <laughs> because as you know, America features a lot in uh, in uh, many many people's childhoods. You know, so we kind of grow up with American programs and American films. So I'm actually quite quite. Flattered that you invited me on your show. It's it's quite humbling.
1: Actually, it's back at you because you've got a, a, a huge world of expertise behind you. name?
0: Um, so you need to tell me where I got this name from. His name is Gizmo.
1: Oh, you, uh, you've got, uh, it was from a movie. I, I forget the name of the movie.
0: Yes, is this little fella. <laughs> oh, uh, it's, right. it's from the movie uh, Gremlins.
1: That's right. Well, yeah, Gizmo. We
0: have- so ob- obviously, I was gonna, I was gonna pick uh, uh, a, f- a movie name for my little cat. Your cat. Obviously, yeah. So, what kind of cat do you have? Oh, just a domestic black and white cat. Uh, he's very cute. He's sleeping at the moment.
1: How did you discover your passion for film?
0: Oh, I think I was seven when, uh, or not even seven, when my dad. Took me to the cinema for the first time ever, I believe, to see uh, *Empire* *The Empire Strikes Back* <laughs> of okay. 1980, and I just fell in love with cinema, with the possibility of cinema, with what you can do with with nothing, uh, just make make people believe that a place or a situation is absolutely real, and you just put them in in the middle of it is just one of the best feelings and experiencing that with other people around you you know that kind of communal religious experience is it's something that unfortunately these days with the lockdown uh, people cannot experience for themselves anymore but uh, hopefully this period of isolation will end soon the
1: concept you brought up of creating something from nothing—I I had spoken briefly, briefly with you about Mark Cousins' *The Odyssey*, the history of film, and that at the very beginning of that documentary, he talks about that exact
0: same thing that you just brought up. Oh, really? Yeah, because I've got to watch that documentary. Yeah, yeah. You told me about it, and I had heard about it before.
1: Yeah, he starts at the very beginning with a beach in Ireland where they did the. Uh, beach scene uh, saving Private Ryan. Basically, it starts off with just a, a lone runner running across the very beach where they filmed it, and then, bam, you're taken right into that first scene of the invasion. And uh, and then he just talks about that very thing that you just said. So I, I thought that was very intriguing, man. The, wow. the commonality amongst you people.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess that's what, what brings us to... A shared experience, yeah. It's something that you can't get from watching Netflix at home. That's
1: right. That's right. So you uh, moved to London, England, and then when did you when did you attend the University of London, the Birkbeck?
0: Uh So that was late, late, in, late in my life, I'd say. Uh, so that's when I decided I was. I don't want to use the word wasted in uh, in education, but kind of not really following my path if you see what i mean so mm-hmm. i felt like i needed to go back into filmmaking or film or filming gen- in the film into the film industry in general so that's when i decided to apply for this program i had been looking uh, for something like this for a few years and uh, it was one of the first years that they did this program um which is uh, uh, a master's in uh, film programming and curating Birkbeck University of london. Um, and uh, it was a very good experience you know you i mean you can i can talk to you about the egos that you can find in uh, university in universities and those kind of environments but you know we will be here until tomorrow <laughs> Stop but, uh, Don't, you yeah. know actually that's all right. So what I find
1: really interesting about the University of London is that it was the first secular university it was founded like 1870 and, and it was the uh, first non-religious university in 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 England so the Cambridge and Oxford were were first before that and then the London uh, University of London came into being and it the, the credentials from people from there are extremely high it's very very uh very, very prestigious university that you attended.
0: Well, yes i I hope I hope it is, and you know, I, I'm sure it's. guys uh, sure, it's a good university. I I don't want to say about the university I've attended, but <laughs> but yeah, I I think it it's taken in uh, in its in a, in regard. Yeah,
1: when you were working for in television, what were the differences within the programming that you had to do between the obvious difference between Discovery Channel and the Animal Planet, but did you have a a different set of criterion that you had to follow in your programming?
0: When when we made a, a series for Animal Planet, that was very, very interesting. It was closer to my heart, I guess, than other programs that we were making. For example, we had this entertainment show that ran for many years that we produced, and it was all about a medium conveying messages from the other side to an audience full of people. So, uh, a bit like, I guess, what you have in America is uh, a me- Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry or something. <laughs> I don't so, even know the program, but it's okay. <laughs> so, that, that program that goes, there is um, the airs on E, the entertainment channel. Okay. Uh, so he does it face to face with a celebrity and our format was a medium actually interacting with a full audience in a studio and trying to pick messages from the other side, uh, and bring bring bringing those messages to the people there. So asking, for example, Oh, I can, I can feel there's something to do with, uh, a key and a drawer, so can somebody understand that? And you know, uh, a ma- um, a mother or a grandmother would put their hand up and say, "Yes, I know what that means." And then, and then they would start the conversation. Um, so I found that uh, <laughs> you know, let's say he paid the bills. Yeah. Well, let's th- just that- say that. Let's leave that- it at that.
1: That whole concept must have been fun to watch because uh, those guys are uh, the the people who are mediums are really great at uh, being able to to apply generalizations and and bring things out of people. So (laughs) I think that
0: was vastly entertaining. I I just felt that there was something real there. Of course. I I think, yeah, I think the guy had a gift, but I also thought the guy, when he didn't get anything from the other side, he was just, I don't want to say making things up, but you know, maybe um, using generalizations, let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Um, so they're very good at talking. So maybe he did have a gift, but he was an, he was enhancing it with his own personality and, and uh, generalizations, as you put it. So when we were making that kind of program, I wasn't really happy. But then when we made factual programs, like the ones we made for Animal Planet, uh, which was about endangered species of animals and their trade uh, across nations. Uh, so when we made those kind of pro- programs, I I loved it. Uh, um, and I felt like I felt like I was making something worth worthwhile that way.
1: So, where did you guys get the footage? Did were, did you work with a, a team of camera people and producers? Putting yeah, that- we
0: had we had a core team of a producer director, um, whom I I've, I've still been in touch uh, after so many years uh pro- approximately about 20 years ago that was uh-huh. so we are still in touch great guy and he still does what he loves uh the most uh, we had a camera operator who was always working with us uh and he's also a fantastic guy uh, so shout out to alan and gary here um, and uh, yeah, we had a group of uh, editors, two editors mainly, uh, and we had uh, we, we were producing everything in house. Um, and then uh, we had uh, our managing directors had this great connection with uh, the commissioning editors of these uh, TV channels, so it was easy for them to get. Commissions and get the money to fund our projects, and they were then um, uh, shown on TV for a few years. So it was a good good experience for me.
1: Yeah. yeah. Did you go out on location at all?
0: Unfortunately, that was the disadvantage of, uh, <laughs> of my job. My job was always kind of office based. I mean, I would go out on location if it was. Uh, Within London and Essex, mm-hmm. um, but not, uh, for example, when we sent our team to the Faroe Islands uh, for an episode on on dolphins, or when we sent them to Bali, or you know, unfortunately, we were staying put. Uh, I remember once we also sent them to the U.S., and it was around the time uh, 9/11 happened. So we were really concerned about our crew. You should have been. Uh, they were shooting in America, and uh, the whole thing unfolded before our very eyes. Uh, I remember one of our fantastic production assistants. A shout out to Neil here. Um, he ra- was running, rushing to the to the TV production company, and uh, and said, you know, put the TV on, put the TV on. Uh, and we put the TV on, and my God, we just stopped working for the whole day. We were glued to the TV. We just could not believe what we were seeing. It was a bit like what happened recently when you had the uh, insurrection at the at the Capitol on January 6th. It was just, you know, it, it just beggared belief. Um, so it was a very sad episode that uh which I still remember I was working there and then we were watching live live images from America with my colleagues. It was very shocking. I was watching
1: that myself and actually I found that far more uh concerning than the insurrectionists. I felt that they were doomed from the beginning and I, I could was frankly could not believe (laughs) the the lack of forethought it's just like what a comedy of errors good lord how could? well i I, guess
0: i guess a thorough investigation will tell us exactly what happened you know why uh the place wasn't secure enough yeah
1: um but you know you
0: can only speculate but you don't want to. Nine one
1: one. I was I was very, very concerned that the reciprocation that the United States was going to do was going to be massive. And I was really hoping it would not be. So how much editing do you have to do for one of those programs? I mean, good lord. I, I know what it is for me when I'm when I'm recording and uh laying down tracks in the studio, I have a lot of stuff that ends up being discarded. I, I mean, how many reams of of uh, footage you have to sort through to get through one of those programs.
0: Oh, we had tons of footage. In fact, we, when we were in production, we hired uh, loggers just to go through every single tape and log it thoroughly. So, for example, at zero one minute twelve, uh, the, this person does this, does that. At zero one minute forty-five. They do this they talk about this you know logging what the footage was uh, was all about and then the editors would use the, the, that that logging that those log sheets to actually go through what they wanted to uh, put into the program but yeah it was uh, it was a fair amount of editing time yeah I, I can imagine for your show it, you know, if you're recording somebody for two hours and then you put out something which is half an hour, you'll probably be working on it for a few days to get to that.
1: My uh, my average turnaround time on a podcast is usually a 12 hours worth of
0: editing. Yeah, which you don't do all straight, 12 hours straight. So it will probably be a few days, no?
1: Uh, the, sometimes it depends on how motivated I am. I've, I, I, You know the drill. <laughs> <laughs> you, you spent you spent 14 hours in front of your console uh, doing production. You know about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean I, I do remember working, for example, for university uh, on essays with a tight deadline. And you know, if the motivation is there, you end up using every single minute of your time. So um, it's all down to motivation at the end of the day
1: so any of the shows that you had done for any of those channels those are all stories so who does the writing who who comes up with the concept and gets the writing in
0: in on these things was that part of your i guess when we worked on the factual uh programs the documentaries uh the producer director um always had a conversation with the managing directors who were the executive producers of the show. And they came up with the stories of, for example, Crime Files, which was done for um, Animal Planet, which was then part of Discovery Channel, um, had consisted in 13 separate uh, programs. And I guess they came up with the 13 stories and then the producer director actually uh, worked on all the material, all the all the research, all the interviewees, um, and then came up with uh, with the story itself. But um, you know, he always had to deal with the executive producers, and they had to deal with the people above them, who were the commissioning editors from the TV channel. So there's always a kind of hierarchy in, uh, in TV production and also in film production. You're always accountable to someone. That was probably part of
1: the challenge that you had with it.
0: Yes, it was. But once you have the, the right frame, then you know exactly what you're doing. So if, if somebody has set the, the right criteria for you, uh, and you know what you're doing, then you spend all the time that you have at your disposal to actually come up with a with a good plan. And I tell you what, a, a good production manager always has a hang on schedule scheduling and budgeting. So they they were the, the two most important things. So inextricably they linked to each other. So you can have, you know, a big budget and a meager schedule uh, or uh, a massive schedule with a small budget. They have to always kind of coincide. And if you're good at budgeting and scheduling, I think that's a good basis for the job of production manager. That's from my experience.
1: mentioned that you had spent some time as a club DJ
0: in London yeah that was my side side job (laughs) so I started DJing as a hobby in my bedroom like everybody else uh, when I was young when I was uh, an adolescent and I I don't know I kept pursuing this hobby and and I found myself in London, you know, the capital of clubbing in a way, um, and I was clubbing myself every night when I was younger. No, say so it's I, not so. <laughs> <laughs> so I started uh, getting to know lots of people, and then from one, one thing led to another. Uh, I was already DJing for private parties and things like that, then... They gave me a shot in a, in a big nightclub. It was one of the biggest uh, gay nightclubs in London on a Friday night. It was called Popsters. doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they closed it down a few years ago. I guess the, the scene changed. And they gave me a shot. I went for an audition. And they liked what I was playing because I had been a customer of that, that club. So I knew exactly what they wanted, what they needed. Uh, and so they gave me a shot and, and then I became a resident DJ for them. And then from there, I started a, a sort of side career as a DJ. And I DJed a bit everywhere in London. I had other residencies in a place in Greenwich, in a place in Wolfenstow um uh, but but yeah popsters was the most important when he was in central london it was massive nightclub he had three um three floors three rooms one was one where they played indie music so rock kind of rock music then uh, there was one where they played r and and then uh, a medium-sized room where they played pop pop music from all eras really mostly it was eighties and nineties, I guess, um, and uh, that was called the rubbish room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it was it was an amazing experience. I really enjoyed that. So one of my friends who is on the podcast is a DJ here in the
1: Seattle area, and when you say that you had some residencies. It sounds to me like this was more than just a little part-time hobby. It sounds to me like you're going floor of board of the floor pedal to the metal uh, working your day gig and then going out and DJing four or five nights a week.
0: No, not quite, not quite. Oh, okay. but, yeah. Uh but yeah, I I guess it was a way for me to de-stress and you know, uh, unwind on a, on a Friday night. Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. What I like about DJing is I don't like the travel per se. I didn't like the travel traveling into work because I had to bring my suitcases and I had lots of I wouldn't say records. They were CD. so I must see I was a CD DJ, sure. uh, um, rather than than a vinyl DJ. Or nowadays, you know, they play everything on laptops, out laptops. But anyway, so I was—I had to bring all my hundreds of CDs in suitcase. So I didn't really enjoy that part. But once you're there with the audience and you kind of breathe the same air and you try and read the people and and try and understand what they want in that particular moment. That's that's when. A good day DJ can read the room and come up with the perfect tune to make them jump, and that's exactly what fueled my my interest, I guess. Yeah.
1: Very very interesting. You
0: have any good stories from that time? I remember once um, I met Boy George. <laughs> righty. Yeah, it was was in Popsters um, when we were down at the Scala in uh, King's Cross and I had just finished my set and I was just getting a drink and I saw him around, he must have been with somebody but he was on his own at that time. I told him, I told him that uh, I was a DJ there and I'd been playing his music and I think he was very surprised because I mean, normally when you think of Boy George, you would think, oh, yeah, he probably played Karma Chameleon or Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? You know, all the Culture Club hits. Sure. But actually, I said to him, look, I played The Crying Game because I'm a massive fan of the film and the song that he covered. You know, the 1964 Dave Barry song that he covered for the 1992 movie. Uh, which which has the same name, the Crying Game. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of more up-tempo version of the song, very danceable. I probably sped it up a little bit more, and it it's just a, like an ethereal um, version of the song with his vocals. It just comes to define something something different. Is it's, it's it's unbelievable. So I told him, and I I guess he was surprised that you know a DJ had picked one of his solo uh, singles, which actually I believe that song charted better in America than he did in the UK at that time. I think uh, he picked uh, at maybe 50. 15 in the charts or something. I think in the UK, it was only 22 in the charts. Uh, So I guess he was quite famous at the time. But nobody would think of that song to play it in a nightclub, you know. so It's quite dramatic, dramatic song. It's a bit sad, uh, but it's it's just the way he sings. It is just amazing. Yeah, he's produced by the Pet, Pet Shop Boys. Oh, so oh it's, really? Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. it's got that kind of infusion of Pet Shop Boys' sound to it, which is which combines with the the vocals of Boy George becomes something extraordinary. So I I really encourage you to seek it out if you don't know it.
1: I I always enjoyed that genre. I ha- always had a lot of respect for what Boy George did. I guess he's back in London now uh, and has a record label, a small label producing. Uh, and co-writing
0: he is still active yes very okay. much indeed yeah and he had a few a few years ago he had a musical in london i didn't which know utilized that. utilized his songs from his career um i can't remember the name of the musical but uh, i know he, he played in leicester square which is you know one of the central places in london
1: that's really interesting it's very very interesting so, tell me about your blog. What uh, inspired you to working I- I- as a blogger?
0: So, I guess the blog came about because I had been at university for a year already, and I felt I had always felt uh, that I needed to put something out there for people if people wanted to read it. Uh, I always, I always posted on Facebook about film filmmakers, and uh, I said, why don't we make it official and open a, an actual blog, hoping that we will get some. Uh, I would get some subscriptions from people. I mean, it's totally free to to join, but um, just hoping that um, you know to nurture a readership, and it's it's about having a dialogue with people about films and. Uh, mostly about films that you might not even know about so i'm not really advertising blockbusters in my blog but um yeah i've been doing interviews to filmmakers i had good interviews with um, a couple of doc makers documentary filmmakers alexandro philippe uh, director of memory the origins of alien
1: that's what I have pulled up on the screen right over
0: there. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I wanted and... to talk
1: to you about that because that was really a great article.
0: Oh, was it good?
1: You you, you had brought up the metaphors that are in Alien, which I, uh, being obtuse, I didn't even understand what was there. I yeah, I
0: mean, the, the research that the guy did on uh, the film Alien is just incredible, and he put it all in into that documentary that premiered um, here in the UK at the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2019. And that's where I saw it for the first time. And then I seeked out the director, um, whom I, who I believe lives in uh, San Diego. He's not even from America, but I believe he's based there. Um, and he, he makes very, very good documentaries. He made another one on uh, William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Leap, Leap of Faith, uh, the same year of uh, of this documentary about Alien. Then I interviewed Mitch Costing, director of uh, Making Ways, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which was another doc that uh, came out a couple of years ago, which basically tries to tell the story of how the, the importance of the sound in Hollywood um, uh, is is very much linked with uh, trying to create a story. Uh, so in other words, she made sure that people under, understand uh, by looking at the documentary that actually it's not just technicians working on sound, but it's actually people who understand story and what they need to convey in order to narrate their story. So uh, being uh, attached to a filmmaker, obviously being in the same room with a filmmaker, um, creates that, that magic for them so that they are inspired and, and they can bring the best uh, out uh, in, in, in every film they work on. So it's it, yeah, it's not just about the history of sound in film, but it's how they actually should be viewed more as artists than technicians. And that's what I appreciated about that documentary. So I talked with Mitch Costin about it. I uh, interviewed Bart Freundlich, uh, who is mostly, I guess, known to be Julian Moore's husband. You know, but uh, he's also an accomplished director, and he's uh, the film that he made a couple of years ago after the wedding, which stars Julianne Moore and the superlative uh, Michelle Williams, um, was the basis of our conversation. So, um, I, so I, it's not just about reviews. It's not just about my opinions on on film and the filmmaking process, but it's also about um, trying to interact with filmmakers. And because I guess because I have that experience in my past as a filmmaker myself, I understand where they're coming from. So I interview them not just on themes that are relevant uh, to their films, but also about the visuals, things that I see, things that I experience uh, hearing or seeing their their films. Um, And I think I I have a a very good interviewee next coming up when her film uh, is uh, is released, next film is released, who is Rebecca Camisa, who is an American documentary maker who was... uh, Oscar nominated for a couple of uh, um, documentaries. One was a short fil- short documentary uh, subject called uh, God is the Bigger Elvis in 2012. And that's about the story of Dolores Hart, who was a pinup in the fifties. And she made a couple of films with Elvis Presley. And she was to be one of those starlets in Hollywood. Uh, You know, she had a seven-year contract like everybody else in those days. But then she found a different uh, path for her life. Um, She decided to leave Hollywood and become a nun. So this is the story of actually one person saying no to Hollywood and following a different path altogether. So it's a very interesting doc that I, uh, I encourage you to seek out. Uh, it's called "God Is the Bigger Elvis," and then she made a feature film about my uh, children migrants from uh, South America into America. And you know how that uh, subject yeah, is really really difficult, especially in the Trump during the Trump years. You know when he tried to separate children from their families. Uh, anyway, that doc was also Oscar nominated in 2010, and it's called uh, "Which Way Home," and it's a documentary feature. This one, uh, she made uh, another doc uh, four years ago called "Atomic Homefront," uh, set in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and it's about this uh, um, site which used to be an atomic um, uh, atomic bomb. Uh, test ground, which uh, the American government had used also to bury uh, radioactive waste, and it's about this community living with this, uh, can I swear on your program? Of
1: course. <laughs> this, shit, <Watch> <laughs>
0: this shit, literally this shit, which is cancerous, amongst all other things, li- in their backyard, uh, which is just shocking. It's an, um, another amazing documentary from Rebecca Camisa. So I, I've agreed that the next film that she releases, I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely uh, interview her. Uh, I'm, I'm in awe of her.
1: that's really cool that you mentioned that so I've talked to a lot of podcasters and a lot of bloggers and a lot of those folks have problems or challenges trying to find people to interview and what what is your process to maybe help some of these folks out
0: it's a very good question Brian well first of all I think that interact. Face-to-face interaction, which is what not you're not getting from lockdown, is what you need. So in other words, if, you, if you're a good attend, attendee of film of festivals, that's where you actually meet the filmmakers or documentary makers. And that's where I met the majority of my interviewees. So you set up plans to actually interview them at a later time, you exchange details. You exchange business cards, and then, for example, I met Bar Freundlich uh, at the Sanders, Sundance London uh, 2019. So, in other words, the Sundance Film Festival, which takes place every January in Park City, Utah, comes over to London every June, and we had a mini Sundance Film Festival in the center of London, which you know brings a, a certain amount of Features that were very successful in that year uh, from Sundance. And he brings over some of the American filmmakers to promote their films. And, and that's where I met Bart. And, you know, I spoke to him. I remember sp- speaking to him in the staircase um, after watching his film. And he agreed to be the subject of my interview. And we exchanged details. He was very, very kind man. You know, maybe you wouldn't expect somebody to be, you know, the husband of a a massive superstar and also be a a down to earth guy. But he actually is. He was at the time, he gave me his contact details and we took it from there. For example, I interviewed Harriet Manamela, who is a South African actress. Uh, through my good friend in South Africa. So he, because he worked with her as a set designer on one of her projects, he just put me in touch with her. And so that was a contact, a, a fortuitous contact. I met Ben Hackworth, director of Celeste, an Australian indie drama in uh, at the London Festival in 2018. And again, he uh, kindly agreed to be the subject of my interview and he was trying to promote his film. He was trying to get a sales agent, I guess, at the time. So he was, uh, he was very interested in uh, promoting his film as much as he could. And he said, yes, fine to that. So it's, uh, I, th- I guess it's luck, the luck of the draw, you can who you can find and talk to at uh, film festivals. Or, for example, for the two uh, interviewees that I had um, about documentaries, um, Alexandre Philippe and Meech Costin, uh, that I had a contact uh, with a, I think it was a sales rep, and she called me and say, oh, are you interested in this interview with this director? <laughs> so I did one. I did the one from... Um, uh, uh, Alexandro Philippe, and then after that was published, uh, she just called me and said, look, I've got Mitch Costing trying to promote this other film. Uh, do you want to view it? Do you want to see? Do you want to inter- interview her? And she gave me a screen... The sales agent gave me a screener, and I agreed to do it, and there it was. So it's I guess it's the la- lack of the draw and, and also... Uh, if you're in the right place at the right time and I don't know contacts. These things is all about contacts. But man, you got to you got to leg it up in film festivals, you know, from one place to another, you know, and just getting trying to see as many things as possible in a day and network consistently and, and constantly. It's all about networking.
1: Well, being in the thick of it as well, it seems uh, you are fortuitous in that you live in a cultural worldwide epicenter in London. So that's yeah. I mean,
0: I guess one of the reasons why I moved here was because I knew that the industry was big here. Um, so I I was lucky in that respect. But even being at the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2019, I was there with my colleagues from my um, master's, and we actually had to write an essay about film festivals. So they picked the Edinburgh Film Festival, we went up there, we talked to all the film programmers. And then, fortuitously enough, I met one of the idols of my life, Mr. Richard Dreyfus. Really, <laughs> he's, he's the protagonist of the, my the, my favorite film of all time, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I met him there and there was again, just be in the right place at the right time, I guess, but it was such a joy because I I've grown up with that film, you know, and it was also a subject of one of my essays for university, which I have in front of me actually. I can read you a little bit about it if you want. Yeah, please. So this is, I guess this is the motivation why uh, I was so inspired. Um, So I said, not only did it have a radical influence on my life, but also on popular culture for over 40 years. This film made me fall in love with the possibilities of cinema, namely how such a grandiose story about the first meeting of humans and aliens could still contain so many intimate family details and emotional elements. Little did I know that this tale of tolerance and respect between different races had touched me so profoundly because it gave meaning to my life as a young gay boy, striving for acceptance, inspiring me forever. So I guess it was, uh, very much close to my heart because of that but i obviously at the time i didn't know that it was because of that but probably it was it's the story of an outcast at the end of the day nobody nobody believes this guy and he just isolates himself from the family and i mean who who in their sane mind would abandon an entire family uh, to go on uh, the pursuit of this idea that was instilled in his head that there might be a contact with a different race, a different alien race. At that, um, I mean, it's yeah. So I, I guess there are similarities there. Um, I was I was probably an outcast and never knew about it until I was a bit a uh, little older. That's a
1: really. Real, it's almost metaphorical in nature it's very very cool I like it I like it very much so most of the people I tell people that hey I'm interviewing a film curator from London and most people look at me with a blank stare they don't know what a film curator does or is <laughs> so could you please explain that
0: I-, I think Brian many people don't know what a film curator does or is <laughs> So uh, I guess a film curator uh, curates the films to be uh, put uh, in a festival for public consumption. So to put in front of an audience. Uh, So their job is to scout, uh, depending on the size of your festival. Uh, So it could be, you know, if you're one of the big three, can Venice and Berlin, or in America, you know, the big ones are the Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF in, uh, in Toronto and uh, Sundance in America. You know, uh, you you've got to scout the right films for the right audience. So that means potentially going around the world in advance, well in advance of the festival and see what filmmakers have in per- preparation and see what they can bring to the festival. And if you have an open relationship with a filmmaker, then you have more of a chance of a dialogue and to be getting the best possible films out of that filmmaker. So in other words, film festivals with uh, premieres, which only have premieres in their lineup of competition, for example, Venice or Cannes or Sundance, they will have world premieres. Uh, Then, um, then they they will get the the peak of the bunch. Um, So it will be scouting films, then going after the filmmakers, making sure they attend the festival. If it's a relatively small or medium sized festival then probably most likely you have entries. So actually the filmmakers are seeking you out as a film curator, film programmer. So they send you the film and then you got to go through a lot of hours of viewing in (laughs) order to select the best possible films for the festival. So that's exactly what I did for the Newport Beach Film Festival in California. I had to... Uh, go through hours and hours and hours of films. And I tell you roughly, the proportion is, if you watch 10 films, you might get lucky with one very good film out of them. So the percentage is roughly 10% of what's out there. It's actually very good for to program at a film festival.
1: Wow, that's an amazing amount of preparation you have to go through.
0: Yeah, and obviously you have people working with you that will make sure that the prints are sent in time. If it's, you know, if it's a physical cinema uh, festival happening in a cinema, so you got prints and they got to be shipped well ahead of time, ready to be screened. Um, or if it's in a dig- digital format to get that uh, well in advance, you've got to have create the event to market it, making sure that you get the audience for it. And so it's that whole machine that happens in a film festival. I've been lucky enough to be part of uh, the Raindance Film Festival, which is probably the most known independent film festival in London. And it's got great films, uh, indies, uh, that you wouldn't normally maybe go and see. But uh, there are very, very good films that can be uh, discovered at dance. And I've had the pleasure to um, host some Q&As for them with film directors, actors, live on stage in the first year uh which was uh 2019 but, but this year i mean now last year 2020 okay. i had to do um the hosting from the comfort of my living room it was all online on zoom and i had to interview people um filmmakers and actors um and um and that was screened live so it was a live uh q a Um, online because of the pandemic.
1: That's pretty incredible. Wow. That's uh, actually a better answer than I could have given anybody.
0: (laughs) I hope I answered it correctly. uh,
1: You know, you have uh, obviously an extreme love and passion for this. That's what drives you.
0: I totally get it. Yeah, you've got to have a passion to do this job because it's quite heart wrenching sometimes you know you, you know, you have knowledge, you know you have passion, you know you have the drive, but most of the times it's working for nothing, no pay or low pay mm-hmm. uh, because the arts have never been considered um, an important thing. And I think they are probably the most important thing, but I'm probably in the minority saying that. Um, So it's very important that we keep sustaining and promoting the arts as much as we can. And I guess the the idea of the blog is also about promoting uh, little-known filmmakers and their projects and hoping that they will get one more view, two more views. I mean, hopefully more than that, but yeah. And, And if people want to check out my blog, they can go yeah so mlrnet.wordpress.com that's mlrnet.wordpress.com okay and
1: uh if someone wants to contact you directly
0: there's a contact uh page there perfect so they can send you a message and then they can, I can give them my personal email or Skype or WhatsApp or Zoom, whatever you give out these days, yeah, I've got them all. I've got them all. We're all we've all been technically a bit challenged, I guess, in uh, lockdown. But we've we've had to learn to deal with it. So, but you know the problems I've been having with Zoom, it didn't crap out today. I
1: can't believe it. <laughs> a miracle happened.
0: <laughs> oh really?
1: Yeah but we only had a little bit of interference. The stream was really good. I'm blown away. There must be nobody on Zoom right now between London and
0: Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And another thing I wanted to mention is that one of the next uh, articles on my blog is because I called it movies, movies, Live music and reviews, that part of live music, I've always wanted to watch more performance. Live performances relate, always, they have to be related to film. Um, so the, I, for example, I, I covered uh, Ennio Morricone when he came to um, conduct the, uh, his orchestra here at the O2 in London in 2016, beginning of 2016, I guess it was just after, just before getting his Oscar for The Hateful Eight. So he uh, came to conduct his music live in front of the audience and I went to that, that night and I wrote an article about it. So I want to do more of those things. And the next one I want to do is Superman in Concert which is this idea that's become uh, older age in the last few years in London um, of getting a classic film, uh, take out the uh, soundtrack track mm-hmm. and replacing it with live music performed by an orchestra on the night. Mm-hmm. So yeah. In other words, they play the film be, be behind the orchestra and then the conductor... Does uh, the whole film, two hours, whatever the film duration is, of the film entirely from beginning to end. And I, I, I've seen one before, but because I'm a big fan of John Williams, yeah. I've always said I've got to go and watch one of my favorite John Williams scores, which is super, Superman, which is also another film that made my childhood. And uh, that was going to come up in March, but it's been postponed because of the lockdown. So that will be in July, hopefully. Cross crossing fingers, and then uh, people will find uh, my review on the uh, on the blog. So that's Superman in concert, something to look out for.
1: It's interesting that you should bring that up because the Seattle Symphony, funny, we were talking about John Williams, uh, did the first Star Wars with that. The, they the original
0: did, Star Wars. Yeah, the original Star Wars. Yeah. yeah, they did that that too here. Star Wars. They've done uh, what did they do? Do uh, Close Encounters? Absolutely. Uh, they did uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They did Harry Potter. Um, all these major soundtracks.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I like that. The oh, they did
0: that ET fun. in concert. That that would have been fantastic to watch and hear. ET
1: Yeah, I've never been to one of those events, but I should go. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. This was great, very, very informative. Very informative.
0: Well, thank you, Brian. I think um it's been a great experience. And um I'm glad do you think I, so. I think we 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 touched on some themes that are really relevant nowadays because of the lockdown situation and the isolation that people are going through. I think, and also the political climate of recent recent weeks, I think if people concentrate on embracement rather than tolerance, I think we would have a better society. Yeah, for example, Brian, uh, I have a friend who's been going through a really rough time uh, recently because she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. And, uh, you know, she's one of my best friends in London and I want to give her a shout out. Uh, she's been very courageous and I know she'll pull through this.
1: My my heart goes out to her. I'm really sorry about that. I have I have lost friends to cancer. I uh, lost a friend 42 years old to head cancer, stage four. When, they, uh, when he got the diagnosis. Oh, brutal very six sorry, months. Too, yeah. yeah, brutal six months. All right. Yeah. Okay, Mickey La Rosa. I, ju- I just wanted to tell you, every time that I pronounce your name, I want to say Mickey
0: De La Rosa. <laughs> yeah. Many people have the urge to add de in the middle of that. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. It's actually Mickey La Rosa.
1: I have actually... French heritage, so my
0: last name with the, the D-E in front of it implies royalty, so is that the... Yeah, exactly right, yes. Yeah. So my dad is from the south of Italy, from a region called Calabria. Okay. Um, and they use La Rosa, two words, Um, and they told me that if there is a surname composed of two words normally it's a noble surname so it, it, you know it comes from uh nobility
1: so we got that going for us
0: right <laughs> yes but i see that you spell it all together or is it just zoom that makes it one word oh no you spell
1: it all to, uh, that that's the way that you would do it here in the states is that you would put it make it all
0: one word I'll so speak. that people don't get confused
1: that, that's right <laughs> yeah, they, Even though I appear to be royal, I'm not. (laughs) All right, Vicky. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Maybe uh, you'd like to come back sometime after we get through the pandemic and talk about some of your
0: experiences. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has been.
1: Hey, you want more mac and cheese? mac and cheese music.blog on YouTube at brian at mac and cheese, Instagram and Twitter www.macandcheese.com. And thank you, anchor.fm, for hosting this podcast. Take it away, Bruno.
0: I'm having an old friend for
1: dinner.